Hey everyone, welcome to Pieces of You, a show about life through the lens of four fierce and resilient women who lost their moms too damn soon. Each episode will feature stories to inspire hope, healing, and connection. Because if we work together, we can make the broken better. Hello everyone, this is Erin, your host today, and today we are doing part three of our four-part series on the mother wound. Today we're going to be focusing specifically on body image. This episode does contain a content warning related to the topic of mother loss and also eating disorders today. Please check the show notes for a more detailed description, and if this episode is not for you, that's all right, we will see you next time. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have a guest with us to discuss the topic of body image and how it is interlaced within the mother wound concept. Uh, we have Stacy Sandin with us today. Stacy is a marriage and family therapist, a certified grief support specialist, and a soon-to-be 200-hour yoga teacher. She has a private practice in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and is passionate about working with people with themes of grief, trauma, attachment wounds, and how to cultivate joy. She is a motherless and fatherless daughter, which has shaped her into how she grieves and loves as a mother, wife, therapist, sister, and friend. She is about to launch an online grief coaching program called Grieve and Love Well. For those who need relief from their pain but still want to stay connected to their loved ones, they are grieving. She's been married to her husband of 20 years, has two teen daughters and two standard poodles, She's happiest when gathered around a table with her family and friends sharing food, company, and laughter. You can find her at www.grievelovewell.com, and you can contact her at hello at stacysandon.com. I will leave that info in the show notes if anyone wants to connect with her after this episode. I do also want to say that Stacy did work for the EMILY program for eight years, and so is even more so familiar with the overlapping of grief and trauma and body image. For those unfamiliar with the EMILY program out there, they have locations in Minnesota, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Washington, and they provide care for leading to the recovery of eating disorders. They have programs for adults, teens, and children, and provide residential, outpatient, and day programs. Okay, with all that being said, Stacey, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We're very excited to have you. We came across you as like a connection of a connection. And I felt like it was just very right. You being a motherless daughter yourself and all of your history within the realm of grief and trauma and body image and loss. So I feel like this is going to be a really good, good episode. So you and I had had a preliminary call where we kind of discussed all of these themes and images that come up when we talk about the mother wound and body image and something that you really visualized for me that I had kind of heard of before, but I would really like you to like go into more detail and paint this picture for us. We talked about this Venn diagram of the intersectionality of the patriarchy, intergenerational legacy, and attachment theory. And so those are all really big concepts and everything. And so I'm wondering if you can go into some detail for us about this diagram this intersectionality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when I think about women's relationship with their bodies, those three themes really illuminate kind of how we are where we're at. So when I think of patriarchy, I think of it as white men having power in our society 
and how they tend to dichotomize women into two roles, either mother or whore. So mother is that selfless, loving, nurturing, saint-like figure. I also like to include Emily Nagoski's term of human giving syndrome, that mothers are really expected and mandated to be kind and loving and giving and pretty and all that. The second one is whore. And this is, again, through a man's gaze that women are seen as sex objects or they're seen that their beauty or worth is connected to their bodies. And then the second theme, intergenerational legacy, that can be through genetics, epigenetics, could be the mental state of the mother while pregnant. It's um, this kind of matriarchal line that gets passed down on what the mother's, grandmother's, our ancestors' relationships were to body, to food, to um, dieting. So that's a big component. And lastly, attachment theory. And, you know, I should say too, obviously we're talking about mother wound today. Fathers play a big part in this too. And I'm always aware being protective of mothers because I think we're really hard on them and have a lot of pressure and expectation for them. So when I talk about attachment theory, mothers still are our primary caregivers. So they are the ones that tend to do most of the caregiving. So if there's any women out there that seeing themselves in some of the themes we're talking about, I hope you can come to self in a loving, curious way instead of a critical way because that would not be my intent at all to criticize, because I really think that women do the best that they can with what they have, especially mothers. But with attachment theory, what we know is early as one month old, a baby can create its attachment to the mother. So we can either have a secure attachment, an avoidant attachment, an ambivalent attachment, or disorganized attachment. So based on mom's mental health, physical health, resources, it's really going to set up how she can attach to the baby. So when we see attachments like avoidant, ambivalent, or disorganized, it really can set up a disordered relationship. It's like a template of how people connect as adults, their relationship with food, and their relationship with body image. So those three themes are a big, important thing for us to be talking about. Absolutely. Um, I just love hearing, hearing like you describe all of those concepts and the intersectionality. So in doing my uh, research for this for this episode, um, and not only talking to you, but research on like other podcasts that have covered this topic and stuff, I came across a clip of Bethany Webster, who we use some of her content in a, a previous episode in the series. But I mean, she's she's like spearheading this like mother wound movement. I'll link a lot of her info as well for people interested. But she was on an episode of the Insatiable podcast with Ali Shapiro talking about body image and connection to the mother wound. And they had mentioned the patriarchy, which, you know, she, you know, she put it as seen as, you know, living in a culture that devalues women and talking about how it creates a distortion in the mother-daughter relationship where it's hard for mothers and daughters to feel both equally powerful and equally loved. And so creating this separation in their relationship with one another. And there's a sense of scarcity. She talks about being the sense of scarcity and like a backdrop of not enough and a scarcity of personal power and a love between women that this culture sets up for us right off the bat. And it makes it challenging to love ourselves and to love each other, particularly within that mother-daughter dynamic. And I just, in hearing you talk about this, intersectionality when we first met and then continuing down and seeing this, it just, 
just kind of elaborating on some of those topics. So with with all this in mind, I kind of want to put this to my fellow hosts, you know, what are some of our initial thoughts or reactions or feelings to this? I have a question, actually. Can we, first of all, this is Sarah here. So nice to meet you, Stacey. Hey. Thank you so much. Hi. I am also, I'm not licensed yet, but I have background in marriage and family therapy. That's my degree. I feel like I'm just like everything you're saying. I'm like, yes, yes, I love it. It's just, you're speaking my language. And I'm learning so much, which is really exciting. Can you just remind me the second? Intergenerational legacies. Intergenerational legacies. Thank you. So it was the patriarchy, intergenerational legacies, and then attachment theory, which you see kind of all interacting to kind of influence people's relationship with their bodies, but also like a lot of things, including food. And I'm going to be, maybe that'll be, we'll talk about that more later, but I'm really curious about, you know, I'm really familiar with like, is it Balby, Bowlby, John? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, who came up with the whole attachment theory and how that works. But I haven't figured out how that relates to food insecurity. Mm -hmm. And so I would be really curious to hear you elaborate more on that. But I also want to give space to my other hosts to give their initial reactions too. I have it written down. I took notes so we can come back to that too. Hi, Stacy. I'm Christine. It's so, so nice to meet you. Thank you. I, when Aaron introduced you, I was like, oh my, we have to connect because we have just a lot of shared things in our lives. So I'm excited to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to hit you up after we have this call. One of the things that really struck me that you mentioned about the mother wound when you were talking about attachment was also acknowledging the role of a father. And I recently in the last couple of days, had a conversation about this series that we're doing with a friend of mine. And she was like, hold up. Like, why is it all about the mother? Why aren't you talking about the father? And it really struck me that there is potential here to put shame or guilt on the mother figures in our lives and really acknowledging the role of fathers and father wound, if we want to call it that, as part of this. So, you know, I know that's not the focus today, but if that comes up, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And, you know, maybe we circle back at a later date to talk more about that in particular. I was like nodding feverishly when you said that, because I almost was like, yeah, it's not just on the moms, it's on the dads. But then I was remembering, I was like, because this is something I love, Stacey, I feel like as a therapist, you get a lot of training on how to, especially a marriage and family therapist, kind of honor everyone's perspective. And so to honor the wounding, you know, that's beneath it. And so instead of, you know, shifting from this perspective of blame to, I think you said curiosity. Yeah. Because it is so easy for me to place all my anger and be like, oh, it's the dads. (laughs) (laughs) But no. Hi, Cece. I'm Shadia. Hi. Hello. I'm honestly just genuinely overwhelmed by the topic of mother wound. I mean, I know this is like our third episode in, but it's still, it's just overwhelmingly, it's so much information. And it's like also hard for me to digest that these things happen. And that's why I am the way I am. And I I also don't want to get down the blame route either. I love the curiosity versus blame because I do like to put more positive twists on things, but I just feel like I'm learning so much and maybe our listeners are as well. So I just can't wait to keep going here. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think this mother wound concept, when we decided to do this four-part series, I'm not sure that we thought how maybe like overwhelmed maybe all of us would feel at certain points in this process because it's huge. Like this mother wound concept is so huge. And so we've been breaking it down into these things. And so I feel like every time we do an episode like this, we're just like our minds are blown more and all of these things pop up for us. So, but it's really great. So Sarah, what you mentioned, what I have to move into now is starting to move into this a mother wound and food connection concept. And so kind of talking about where that connection starts and how it continues literally from the womb in our mothers to adulthood, which Stacy had mentioned during our preliminary talk. And so, and then getting into that, potentially how eating disorders can show up and different body image judgment issues can show up and everything. So I wonder, Stacy, can you take us through that mother food connection? Absolutely. So symbolically, food is the closest thing to mother. You know, in utero, breastfeeding or bottle feeding, the baby fuses mother and food. So as the baby ages, depending on, you know, if the mother's not there due to death, if she's physically there, but emotionally not there due to mental illness, if baby can't access mom or if the child can't access mom, They may want to draw a lot of food in as a surrogate. So we can see maybe some emotional overeating, overeating, binge eating. In my time at the Emily program, we would see that as a theme. And I had a client say it so beautifully. She's like, food feels like my mother's hug to me. Like it was really her way to bring in mother. And we tend to see more higher weighted bodies when there is that sort of mother wound and bringing food in. Another sort of subgroup I saw, mothers who had some narcissistic trends, their daughters tend to be more um, orthorexic, more perfectionistic, really rigid with eating, really rigid with food, over-exercising, clean eating, and um, they are literally a reflection of mom. So in order to get mom's love, food would have to be used in a scarce way. And I really liked when you use the word scarcity because I think that's a really good word. And then we also saw moms that tend to be overbearing or intrusive or overprotective. We saw the daughters sort of push food out. So that was the way to get mom out. Because mom was so enmeshed with daughter that that was their only way to literally try to shrink to be able to get mom out. That was like a boundaried way to try to keep mom out. So that is when we saw folks severely underweighted or having anorexia. Can I ask a question? Yeah. That's so fast. I mean, this is so fascinating. I feel like this is one of those quizzes where it's like, which parents like body type did you have? But (laughs) I feel like I can fit into all of them at different points in my life. And it's making me curious about, you know, like I said, I'm also very interested in attachment theory, primarily because I've struggled with it. I've noticed it's something I want to understand more to explain my own interesting, curious behavior at times. And I'm just curious if you think that a person's attachment style, like with their romantic partner, say, or like a, you know, like the one that my understanding is that the attachment insecurity develops, you know, early in life, and then it can change, I imagine, but then it's kind of projected or relived a little bit through those later close relationships, usually with like a romantic partner or maybe more people than that. But 
would that be reflected also in a person's eating habits, like that push-pull? Yeah, absolutely. As you're talking, I was just thinking about, you know, so as early as one month old, the baby starts to develop this. And you can change that in our life. We can create an earned secure attachment. So I always, when clients come in and they're so discouraged because they have an insecure attachment, it's like, oh, we can completely shift this to create an earned secure one. But yeah, it does show up for sure in the food. Absolutely. And our attachments can shift with different relationships, but only when like in times of distress is when we see where our patterns are. When I'm feeling happy, there's enough food in the fridge, money in the bank, really connected to my partner, I can feel really secure. But then in times of distress, when there is a scarcity in lots of different ways, then we can see that attachment wound reemerge. So interesting. And it could be less obvious things too that, you know, because we talk about all the things that can be triggering, all the secondary losses that are experienced after, you know, with grief. And oh my gosh, that's, this is a lot. It is. I was going to say that for me, food is a filler for loneliness because as a child, I was home a lot by myself, I think. And and so that filled that void for me and it brought me happiness, right? So then it filled that void. And I, I see that, I remember that in college as well, when I felt lonely, I would be like making my hot pockets or whatever I'd be doing. And then even now as an adult, I mean, I love food, but I sense when I'm like not eating the right foods and I'm just like more binging, you know, and, and it's filling that void of, of something. I don't know what it is, but. Well, there's physical hunger and emotional hunger mm-hmm. and food is so accessible. I mean, for most of us, of course, there's some food insecure folks out there, but it's accessible. And since it is so close to mother, which is comfort. Absolutely. So many people can unconsciously overeat or emotionally eat and they don't even know that they're doing it. I don't think I've ever said that out loud. So that's a moment I just had there. Good for you. I 100% relate to that, Shadia. And I mean, I'm very conscious of it. You know, just I'm like, okay, I know I feel full right now and I'm trying to fill it. And I also am aware that it's not going to fill it. And I'll, I'll continue to do it anyway. <laughs> Because I've lived long enough and I've done it enough that I know it actually doesn't work. But in the moment, I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Well, it is that longing that babies and children and adults have when we don't have that attachment figure. It literally is a longing. And even though it doesn't work, that can kind of give us some possible info about what those early attachments were like. Like, I'm crying. I'm trying to pull mom in and she's not coming. It's not working. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yes. I think it's interesting to, you know, to note that you can do this and have an awareness of it and choose, make the conscious choice to kind of still uh, allow it in a sense, which I feel is where I'm at in my life. And kind of something that comes along with preaching self love and self compassion is meeting self where one is at and just being, again, curious about yourself and noticing these things with the hope that, you know, if you, you know, because I guess, and maybe you can speak more to this, Stacey, but, you know, like there are real negative, you know, potentially health consequences of having unhealthy or dysfunctional relationship with food. 
whatever you want to call it. And so in that sense, it could be, you know, a matter of wanting to change it for those reasons. But like, I know I have several habits that are not the healthiest. And yet I am making the choice to kind of allow them because they like, they don't fix it, but they work right now. And I think that is a really, I imagine there's a lot of shame and stuff wrapped up in the, I mean, that's what body image issues really stem from, but, you know, then shame about how you cope with it only, I think, adds. Absolutely. So a couple of things to that, you know, loneliness is almost unbearable for mammals. Like we are pack animals. We're meant to connect. So loneliness is so painful. So when I hear clients who pull mother in through food, I don't want to take that away. I'm not going to say that that's good, bad, right, or wrong. I'm like, yay, you found a really creative solution for a very painful problem. So let's honor that. And we can add in some other coping strategies too. It doesn't have to be about taking away. What do we add in? And it's kind of a fruitful exercise to even just hit pause before eating when we know, okay, this isn't physical hunger. I just ate an hour ago. This is emotional hunger. What am I really hungry for? So maybe you take a minute to just jot down. I feel lonely. I feel sad. I don't feel good enough. I don't feel lovable. You know, whatever it is to just give you a moment of awareness. And then you can go back to eat. You know, again, like I don't take that away from anyone because it has served a really important purpose. And then what you said, Sarah, about the shame, I was thinking that as a pattern, we can see there's a trigger. So let's say I'm experiencing loneliness. The thought might be, I'm going to be alone forever, or, you know, this is so painful. The feeling might be grief, shame, the behavior's overeating, and then comes the shame cycle. And it's just like a spiral that is incredibly painful to experience the shame of overeating. And, you know, I just think shame is such a bastard. It's so unuseful. Guilt is productive. If we step outside of our values, then guilt helps us reconnect. But shame says, I'm not worthy. Guilt is, I made a mistake. So we talk a lot about shame. And how can we feel ashamed for wanting comfort? How can we feel ashamed for needing connection? It is a human experience that we all need. I got goosebumps when you just said that. I got chills. <laughs> oh, oh. I think we need a sound bit for like aha moments. Mm, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was one. That was it. <laughs> I'm just feeling like I am in love with Stacy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh I am as well. Anytime she jumps in, I'm like, yeah. What do you got now? More, uh-huh. more, more. <laughs> I know. Hanging on every word. Absolutely. Like all of us are nodding along and we have these aha moments that I'm sure we can relate to in in some way, you know, um, or we can recognize some of these things in ourselves. One thing that I wanted to that I wanted to kind of go off of along the lines of this connection that we have is this idea of like viewing ourselves as our mothers, particularly in the child state or adolescent state. And there's a point that comes in adolescence where, you know, you can call it like a rebel stage or something where, where you are breaking your like emotional connection and kind of separating yourself from like your mother, or your parents, because you're, you're about to move out into the world. And, you know, you're, you're breaking a connection to survive on your own. But particularly when we're in this child state or adolescent state, we don't. 
and can't separate the image of ourselves from our mothers. And that's specific to mother-daughter relationships. And I think an example of this would be like, you know, our mothers may be talking negatively about themselves or their bodies and us internalizing that because we don't see a separation. Because as a child or teenager, we see them as us. You are who I will become. You know, you are the image of who I, because I am a daughter, you are a mother. We are both, you know, female identifying. And so we, we continue along this path. And I wanted to bring this up because this is something that I think I personally relate to in terms of very particularly body image and how that's carried me through into my adult life now and my issues with body judgment and everything and kind of stemming back to this inability to separate myself from my mother, who I will become. And I wonder what can we, can we, can we open this up as well? Yeah. You know, when I think about babies, they literally think they're an extension of their mothers, almost like a third arm. They honestly, they don't have a sense of self yet. So then as we age, of course, we start to grow that. But yes, all the research says the mother's relationship with food, body dissatisfaction, and weight literally gets transmitted to the daughter. And it's interesting because it's the daughter's perception of it. So even if a mom's like, oh, I totally have a healthy relationship with my body, it's the daughter's perception of it that really imprints onto her. And yet, and all this is unconscious. You know, we don't look at our mothers and be like, I am going to be like you. But it is, it's all transmitted down and it's down this matriarchal line too. Like I'm so fascinated by epigenetics and this idea that you don't have to have had the experience your mother or grandmother had, but you could have the same trigger, even though that wasn't your life experience. That genes literally change and get expressed based on our life experiences. And that all comes down that matriarchal line. It's insane. And for our listeners, like you said, epigenetics, is it epigenic? Epigenetics. Epigenetics. That's like, generally speaking, the study of genes and how things are kind of transmitted through genetics. They did a lot of research on people that were in the Holocaust and how, you know, their grandkids, of course, were not. But based on food scarcity, which is a really interesting thing we're talking about, that the genes can get expressed in a way where a lot of grandkids of people in Holocaust have eating disorders. Wow. So they had access to food. There wasn't this restriction externally. So it's a fascinating theory. They also did research on rats where they, sound so awful, but they traumatized the grandparent rats. Then the children rats lived their best life, had all the food, all the access they wanted. Then they had the grandkid rats living their best life, all the food that they wanted. But they traumatized the grandparents with the smell of cherries. So every time the kids and grandkids smelled cherries, they'd have a trauma response. Oh my God. <laughs> so think about the implications for us when we think of our ancestors and what gets passed down. And the term is carried feelings when we're experiencing our mothers and grandmothers, great-grandmothers trauma. We really have to acknowledge what's mine, what's yours, what do I need to give back up to the universe or give out? Because I don't want to pass this down to my, I have two teen daughters. I'm not passing this down to them. One of the things that I've thought a lot about too, and I, this concept has been something I've thought about for a long time, just knowing that the stories that came before us are impacting us in ways that we both know and don't know. 
And I think one of the challenges for me is that I'm not conscious of all of the things that have impacted me, right? I don't know those stories. So like trying to navigate who I am because of those things and then being intentional about breaking patterns and making sure, I mean, I also have two teenage daughters. I have two sons as well who are younger, but, you know, really wanting to break some of those patterns for the generations that come after me, not only my kids, but, you know. Yes, that is so well said. You know, it's interesting too, this idea of storytelling. Our bodies tell stories too. So it doesn't even have to be language that's been passed down. But, you know, again, if our attachment styles can be set up by one month old, literally our, it's all implicit memory. So memories are stored in our bodies. So this connection with mom, if it's secure or not, gets imprinted into our bodies. And that's part of the stories that get passed down too. That's why things like yoga, meditation, body-based therapies like EMDR is so important because a lot of our trauma is pre-verbal. It's before age three. And we don't have any explicit memories or conscious memories of that, but we do have to use our bodies to release it. Again, mind-blowing moment here. But I've been, as of, I would say the last five, eight years is when I first heard about the, what's the term again? Epigenetics. Epigenetics, yes. Because I was colicky as a child. My mom lost her dad when she was 13. And then I lost my mom when I was 13. But I was colicky. Both my kids were colicky. And I was just like, what am I doing wrong? Which granted, I think I did have a lot of anxiety. But I think there is such a truth to the genetic makeup of me, you know, my mom to me to my kids. Like, I think that was in there. I think that is one of the causes or whatever. So anyways. Well, and like how great to be a parent that can notice a colicky child and practice being soft and relaxed. You know, like when I think about the anxiety I had when my kids are little, it's like, ah, you know, it, it's such a, again, this pressure filled experience being a mother, we have to do everything right. We don't want to see our kids in distress. So to be able to do something different like that with a colicky kid getting passed down is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask, is that then in a sense, it almost sounds like that is a form of the healing. It's like this little infant vessel, you know, of a human being who is just expressing unconsciously, you know, this feeling that we're trying to, part of our show, it's like normalizing just natural human expressions of emotion and grief and crying is a big one. And I just, yeah, I I think that's fascinating to think of this coming, being expressed in infants. But then like you're saying, it really will vary based on how it's interpreted by the caregivers and like the state that the caregivers are in to be able to even take that on. And that's part of, I think, why I've been so drawn to different parenting strategies because I'm not a parent yet, but like since I've been a teenager, I feel like I've been preparing because there's something in me, like I love children, I connect with them so much. And yet I feel very unprepared and almost like I need the guide in some ways of how to interact with kids in a way that will help them not maybe help prevent them suffer from some of the things that I have in certain ways, like being misunderstood. Yeah, mostly. Well, and we need our mother circles. You know, if you all have lost your mothers, how do you mother when you're not a mother? I mean, it's a, it's a riddle. I mean, it really is hard. 
And also I was thinking about this parent educator I worked with years ago. I was pregnant with my first daughter. And I was like, so what do you do when you have a colicky baby? Like, how do you calm down? And I'm ready to hear like, step one, do this, step two. Yeah. And she said, root for them. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, I was like, that felt really good. She goes, you just root for them. You're just in it with them. You just help them. You don't, yeah, you don't instead of fighting you, against it. Yeah. Which I did. I was really good at fighting against it. Yes. I could use that vice, Stacey. You know, we all could. We all need this. And what a beautiful service you guys have to teach people that it's okay to feel. I think I would be out of a job if I could just teach people how to feel. That's all we need to do is have a beginning, middle, and end of a feeling and then let it go. It'll come back, but just let it go. Feel it and let it go. I know. And how much we have made feeling taboo, you know, in certain spaces and how uncomfortable you know, we've become by emotion and, and here we are all, you know, female identifying. And I feel like men, you know, are the ones who receive a lot of, like, I can't even imagine trying to navigate emotions, like just for the first time, <laughs> you know, that sounds hard. We do not socialize and acculturate men to have emotional literacy. No. We put disservice to our men. Yeah. Because you can know it and still have a, a hard time expressing it, which is what I'm going through. We get permission to feel as women. It doesn't mean that it's easy and it doesn't mean we do it well, but we do have permission. Yeah. I feel this feeling <laughs> to share, and I know I've said this before to my fellow co-hosts, but I'm just feeling this need to share this idea of also listening as mothers, listening to our intuition when we don't have our own mothers to help us navigate mothering. For me, that has been just a key part of me that I have learned to return to because there's so much noise outside of us telling us how we're doing it incorrectly. And even just like questions that come from people that care about us that seem like they're just curious. They can all often feel judgmental or shame filled, like, are they sleeping through the night or blah, 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 you know, and you're like, oh, like, you know, I just, you feel judged so early on in motherhood. And like I was saying though, that, that, that return to intuition. And I mean, I'm going to, I feel like I've said this so many times, but I am a big believer that my mother is in my intuition. So she flows through me in my intuition. So I don't know. I don't know if that helps or resonates at all. I know I've said it before again. So I'm going to keep saying it, I think. <laughs> I love that. And that's one way we stay connected to our mothers is to be quiet and to listen. So I love that that's how you stay connected to her. I think that's beautiful. I think I said this in the early mother loss workshop, which is how this all, this was the, that was the origins of this for me. That's where I met Christine and Shadia, eventually Aaron. and. I shared that it's kind of similar to what Christine is saying that like, because I lost my mom when I was so young, you know, I heard people talking about God, you know, this idea of this like kind of abstract, powerful, all-knowing being. And to me, the closest thing to that was my mom. So I've kind of intertwined intuition, God, the universe, my mom, it's all one mm -hmm. in a way. I love that. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you lost your mom? So I was four and a half and I know we're going to get into this later, but I am so curious and confused about my experience considering 
I don't remember obviously consciously my mom like really influencing me in terms of body image, but like you're saying, there's so many unconscious, subtle things. You know, I know she was going through cancer treatment at the time and I look back at pictures and she had gained a lot of weight during that period. And so the, like the photos I have of her, she's much bigger than she was before that. And I oddly carried a lot of shame about that as an adolescent and teenager. Once I started to learn, you know, thin is beautiful, thin is ideal. And then I was ashamed to show pictures of my mom because I was like, she's not, you know, other people won't think she's beautiful. It was really sad. But again, because I was so young, it's like so confusing to me because it's not like I have a memory of my mom being like, oh, I hate how I look. And she didn't strike me as someone who, she seemed really, the vibe I get is that she was a really not pretentious, not, she's really down to earth, kind of natural, not showy kind of person. But like you're saying too, like she may have given off these signals that maybe she wasn't even aware of insecurities that go really far back. Absolutely. Yeah. And even if there's no conscious memories of that, the way she felt about herself had to show up in how she parented. So people who, I mean, I I really don't know any woman that either doesn't struggle with her body or is in recovery of struggling in her body. So one possibility, if it was hard for her to gain weight, let's say the way that maybe she came to you or held you or parented you could have an imprint on you. Mm-hmm. And I remember at that age, actually feeling like her size felt comforting to me, like being, and I remember feeling that with other like larger caregivers, like feeling like I feel so cozy in their arms, like they're so soft and just like, that was the best. And that was before I clearly had internalized any of this sort of negative messaging about larger bodies. Exactly. Well, and what a beautiful sensory memory for you to hold. Mm-hmm. And that's something I say to clients. I'm like, look at yourself through your child's eyes, your pet's eyes. What does your body do for you? Oh my God. Like I love petting my dogs. That brings me so much joy. You're hugging people I love. Like that's all through my body. It's not through my head. It's not through my heart. It's like what my body gives me in a pleasurable way. Yeah, Sarah, what 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 you're kind of bringing up now is uh, what we're going to slide into next. I wanted to pose these questions to the fellow hosts to kind of bring the bring this this topic and these experiences into into our lives. And so, at at whatever level you feel comfortable with, you know, kind of posing these questions um, about. Can you recall ways in which your mother compared her body to yours or if other relatives did it? Because I know, Sarah, you lost your mom so early. Does that happen now as adults? And how does body judgment play a role in your family structures today or your personal relationship with yourself today? I know for me, um, I do recall my mom comparing her body to mine. You know, she'd reminisce about, you know, she was a skinny mini like me, that was like the term or whatever. And, you know, like she ran track in high school and, you know, she was, she was thinner. She was more athletic. Her body changed after she had her pregnancy. Her body also changed after she went through treatment for breast cancer when I was a kid. And I remember her, you know, drinking slim fast. And I remember her going to Weight Watchers and all of these things in the nineties and early two thousands that were very like trendy as well. 
And also as a girl, as a young woman who was raised in this sliding culture of the 90s into Y2K of thin bodies, this very cultural phenomenon of like being a certain age and seeing everything in media, everything pushed on me that thin bodies are ideal. They are beautiful. And I was also in competitive dance when I was younger and there's pressure on that as well. And so all of these things combining along with my mom doing those body comparisons, and I have no judgment for that. I have no judgment for that because like, I'm not saying, you know, my mom caused my body image issues because, you know, I don't believe that. And, that, and I also want to stem back to this giving curiosity and grace to these patterns that show up intergenerationally um, probably happened with like her mother and other female family members uh, as well. But definitely, I think that I carry like body image issues for myself because I did see myself as turning into my mom. You know, I was so close with her and we had this relationship. I couldn't separate that. And I didn't realize it at the time. But like now, you know, processing going through my own healing, it was really hard for me to separate my image from my mom's image. And I looked up to her. I really did. And so being unable to separate my body image of, well, that's going to be me and she's unhappy. So I'm eventually going to be unhappy. Or that's my perception of her making comments, whether or not she felt negatively about her body or not. You know, my perception of that. And, you know, I carry that into my life now. And currently I'm struggling also with, you know, I'm quite pregnant right now. And so it's all jumbled up in that as well. And it's like, there's more pressure and I feel all these body judgment things coming up again. I just recently talked to my provider and I asked them like, please do not share my weight when you weigh me at the office. And they were very kind and generous about that, which by the way, for anyone listening out there, you can say that to any doctor, any medical provider. And if they continue to tell you your weight, you can make a complaint. Unless it is medically necessary for you to know your weights, you do not have to know it. You can take a blind weight, but that's how it's moved through to me, starting with those things coming up with my mom when I was younger and how it's moved into me as, as an adult now. So, you know, posing those questions, uh, fellow hosts, you know, what are, what are our answers to those? I want to say about the weight thing going to the doctor is when I say, to, I kind of say it jokingly now, I'm like, I, I don't want to know, like, I, but I kind of say it jokingly, not that serious. And so then I stand up on it and I'm not looking, but then, you know, you step off and it's still down there digitally. And I'm like, couldn't you be respectful enough to like cover that up? Because I don't know, maybe I should have enough control myself, but I'm like, the number doesn't mean anything to me. I was going to say though, like the number does mean a lot to some people. I think that's the issue, right? Is that people fixate. Well, it obviously does mean something to me if I don't want to know it. I guess that's part of it, right? You know? Right. That illustrates that like relationship, you know, it's like, yeah, being curious about your reason too, you know, for. You're curious about my reason? I'm no, like extending that curiosity, you know, to oneself, if, if you so desire, you know, Mm. like, because I think people could choose not to look for various reasons, but the fact that it's just, it is interesting. Like I had never thought about that before as being a trigger. It's so normalized as a process, but there's so much wrapped up in that that is not acknowledged. I have so many thoughts right now, but I I just want to acknowledge that I 
actually now, whenever I go to the doctor, I, they say, let's take your weight. And I say, no, thank you. I don't need to know the number because I know that it's triggering for me. And I just know how I feel in my body and how my clothes fit and whether or not I'm eating healthily. And the number doesn't matter. So unless there was some significant reason for them to take it, it's just a no at right when we walk in the door. (laughs) And that, that's a, you know, throwback to really my teenage years. And after my mom died, um, my co-hosts know, like I went through some serious depression two years after my mom died, when my dad was diagnosed with colon cancer and I ended up in the hospital for depression. And I actually didn't really have issues with eating until I went to the hospital and I met someone there that was anorexic. And she kind of got this, well, it wasn't her fault. It was, you know, I started learning about it from her anorexia and I knew I could not eat. So I decided that I would try taking laxatives and making myself throw up on occasion. I really hate throwing up though. So that didn't last long, but I, it's interesting because I actually really, I feel like going to the hospital saved my life. And I also started experimenting with an eating disorder after I left the hospital. And that was super unhealthy. And part of what was happening too, is that my dad wasn't, there was no structure to our meals anymore. So my dad really wasn't making meals. I wasn't eating regularly. I, it was, it was messy. And then I expressed this in ongoing therapy and the therapist ended up recommending that I go on Jenny Craig because they could provide meals for me. But Jenny Craig is actually a weight loss program. And so I was fi- I was actually fine. I was probably like, I mean, it doesn't matter. I was a great weight. Okay. I don't even need to say the weight, but I ended up losing like 10 pounds that I didn't really need to lose, but I ended up losing that weight. Right. But at that point I started becoming obsessed with that number, you know, just obsessed and, and even I would, I would like count things that I was eating and like, I would, my favorite numbers are two, five and seven. So I would eat things in twos and eat things in fives and eat things in sevens. And I'm like, I'm crazy. But it was like, you know, these were the patterns that I was engaging in. And yeah, so I just don't need to know, don't need to know my weight. I do want to comment though on my mom as well. You know, that was also an issue for me. And my mom never said anything disparaging about my body, but she definitely did the comparison game. And, and that struck me, you know, it's, it's stuck with me. And so then I felt bad about it, right? I felt bad that, you know, my mom was really small on top, bigger on bottom, but she was still actually small overall. She just wasn't as proportionate as she said I was. So like, I'm more of, you know, equal top and bottom. And she would comment on that. And, uh, you know, I kind of felt bad about it. I felt shame about it. Uh, Guilty that I've had more of a structure that she seemed to want. And then, of course, I watched her like go in these phases of running a lot or, you know, eating pumpernickel bread with cucumbers on it. And, you know, like these waves of, you know, doing the like this extreme eating and extreme exercising and then stopping doing that. And then anyway, so that's definitely played out for me in my life now. And that's like what I have. And I don't have a lot of insight around it yet. So I know we're getting close to time. I just, I guess, want to throw out there if anyone can relate and maybe wants to share their own insight that they've gained around it. But like I go to extreme healthy eating and 
really controlling what I put into my body. And, but it's in a way that I think can be masked by, um, like, I didn't realize it was problematic until I wasn't um, eating sometimes because I couldn't find the right foods to put in my body. And I'd literally be starving by the end of the day. And I lost a ton of weight because I was trying to be vegan, but I didn't need to, it was for reasons that I now see rooted in like control and comfort and pain and and all of that. But I feel like Shadia, you were going to say something earlier and then I kind of cut in. Oh, it's, it's fine. I was just going to say that my mom was tall and thin and beautiful and very, and was very controlled. Like she didn't drink more. I've said this before, but didn't drink more than two glasses of wine and also didn't like gain weight, didn't lose weight. She just was always, she always knew where she was. And I am like a roller coaster (laughs) and I'm also don't, I'm not really built like her either. And so it's always this compare game in my head still to this day thinking, well, because she died when she was 45 and I'm only 40. So I'm like, well, I know what she was like at this age. Like, why, why can't I be there? Right. Like, why can't I have that control over, you know, what I eat and what I like, what happened? <laughs> what went awry? I'm working on it. <laughs> Any other thoughts, comments, things that come up for our hosts in terms of, you know, these questions, body image and our mothers personally for us? Or from Stacy, Yeah, or from Stacy. So listening to you guys and the theme of control is a really fascinating one because when we ruminate on food, our weight, and our bodies, it's a great distraction. We scapegoat our bodies all the time as a way to avoid the mother wound or whatever the wound is. And it gives us this like illusion of control. And sometimes we can lose weight or sometimes we can maintain a certain weight. But whenever we get there, the goalpost moves and then we want to do more. And then the goalpost moves. So instead of being so seduced by body and weight and focusing on that, we got to go, oh, this is what needs our time and attention. So the body image can be a way to cope with what is also possibly the wound itself. Like it's both. That was like another aha moment. Insert audio there. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, we are getting a little bit down there on time. And I, I feel like, especially for this episode, I want to, I want to, I want to like end or like wrap up on a conclusion <laughs> to this, this big monster of, you know, body image and the mother wound uh, intersectionality. And, you know, I kind of, I kind of wonder what that looks like in terms of, in terms of of healing, and I know all of all of us, me and my fellow hosts, you know, we've we're all on our own healing journeys, and so many of our listeners are as well. And you know, I really I think that this episode will resonate with a lot of people. And again, whether you've lost your mother or not, you know, this is so prevalent in our matriarchal lines and within our culture and our family structures. What does healing body image and the mother wound look like? on an individual level, on a mothering level, on a family level? What does that look like? Where does it start? What do we do to, to, you know, how do we start this process? I would say dismantling the patriarchy, really exploring the intergenerational themes and the matriarchal line, exploring attachment wounds. And even if we haven't lost our mothers, our attachment really is a template of how we connect and attach to food, to relationships, to our body, to everything. 
So really exploring and unpacking that. You know, something we can all do today is try to do no harm. Try not to speak so disparaging about your body. When there's an urge to do that, just hit pause. Maybe you put one hand on your heart, one hand on your belly, and just take a deep breath. So you don't have to love your body today, but maybe we just commit to do no harm towards our body. Any body-based things like yoga, meditation, um, any trauma therapies, I think are great. Thinking about what can my body do for me? It's not just about what it looks. You know, like Erin, you're pregnant right now. You're cooking up a baby. It's amazing that your body is doing that. There's so many gifts our bodies give us that maybe even creating a gratitude journal to jot down the things you notice that you appreciate. And I loved, love, love, love the conversation about not getting weighed at a doctor's appointment. You have every right to ask. I love that. No, thank you, is what Christine said when she goes there. There's health at every size providers out there. Hayes is the acronym. They have great podcasts and social media. There's different Hayes providers out there. They do such a great job to reteach us that weight does not equal health at all. We've been screwed by the medical community, insurance companies that BMI is somehow equals health and it doesn't. Now it's a piece of the puzzle. Weight can be an indicator, can be a symptom, but it's not the whole puzzle. I giggled a little when you started because you were like, step one, dismantle the patriarchy. And then just went, I was like, yep, yep, just start small right there. Because my first initial thought was like, follow, mine feels everything you said, like, yes, 100%. I think I would call everything you said, like the work that like the hardest work out there, the work you don't get paid for, we don't, aren't valued on in terms of money, but following Instagram or social media, like if that's something that's big for you, like body positive kind of accounts, that's been life-changing for me just to see it modeled and reflected as being something positive, wonderful, beautiful. And again, focusing not on even the look so much, but like the functionality of the human body and like the intricacy of it. It's amazing. Like I, I think it's fascinating that our veins and like trees look so similar. Like that's just uh, something I've observed in my body that's a very fair skin so I can see my veins very well. (laughs) Anyways, learning to love the body more every day. I think mine is just more about acceptance, just being, just accepting myself for who I am and being okay with that. Cliche, but it works. I'm on the same page with you, Shadia. Yeah, acceptance. Of course you are. (laughs) (laughs) For me, one thing stuck out to me when you were giving this wonderful conclusion and steps, Stacey, was you're talking about how uh, we just have to do do no harm. You know, I don't have to love my body today, but maybe just start with no harm, not harming it. And it brings me back to my yoga teacher training and the limb of yoga ahimsa, which is nonviolence and non-harm. And when we turn that inwards, and there are different ways to to act on ahimsa in our community, within our families, but within ourselves. And if we're talking about in terms of body image or our relationship with our mothers, no matter how wonderful or complicated or harmful they are or were, I don't have to love my body today, but I can do it no harm. I can start there. I can start with ahimsa, with nonviolence, with neutrality. That just struck me. And 
I'm probably going to be reflecting on that for, for a little while. So yeah, that was really beautiful. Thank you for that conclusion. I love that. Can I just add too, because the, the, since you brought it up again, I was going to say this before, but just also challenging or being curious about one's own perception of harm, what is considered harm? Because I think in this conversation, there is already a lot of, we're getting a lot of messaging that eating, even the idea that there's bad food out there, just being, again, curious about that, but maybe you could offer another perspective or way of describing that sentiment, like the doing no harm. It's almost like, I hear just like unconditional self-compassion. Like, cause what if you do do harm? That's where I struggle. Cause I get caught in that shame cycle daily. Yeah. Well, even accepting the reality that you're doing harm is important to be able to say that I am being harmful. I need to feel however I feel about that shame embarrassment, whatever. I need to feel that and then let that go. And how do I do it differently? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Well, we do have to start wrapping up here, but Stacy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So nice to meet you all and spend this time with oh, you. Thank you. Gosh, you have been so lovely and so insightful. And I think, I think we're all just like, we've had these aha moments and you're amazing and we love you. And yeah. I'm going to put all your contact info um, in our show notes for listeners who want to explore you and your services more um, and everything like that. And I'm sure we'll probably explore you and your services more too and, you know, be in touch. So thank you so much for your presence here today. Thank you. So nice to meet you all. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Stacey. Thank you for listening this week, everyone. Thank you to my wonderful co-hosts for your presence, your vulnerability, muddling through this intense topic together today. And thank you so much to Stacey St. She was fantastic. We loved having her. Yeah, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. We release new content every other Tuesday. Our next episode will be the final installment of our four-part series on the mother wound, mother wound, the aftermath. You can listen wherever you stream your podcasts. You can also find us at piecesofyoupodcast.com and on Instagram and Facebook at Pieces of You Podcast. If you love our pod, please rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We would so appreciate it. Take care of yourselves. And remember, if we work together, we can make the broken better.
for